Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. For those of you keeping track, this is episode number 87. Thanks for joining me. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sharon Rojo from HealthMart. Now, last time we talked with Sharon, we discussed his research with electrocautery devices. Well, he has another study with even more data. So some great stuff coming from Sharon. But before we talk to Sharon, I want to take a few minutes and talk about a recent article in the HPN Healthcare Purchasing News. So every year, HPN publishes the average annual salary of sterile processing professionals. Now, if you're interested in this information and it's good information, you can do a couple things. You can go to the hpnonline.com and look up this article. And the article is the ups and downs of SPD from 2022 to 2023. Now, if you're like me, there's a little easier way to do that than going on to the hpnonline.com. If you get the insights, and the insights is a newsletter that's emailed out to HSPA folks, there is a hyperlink in the insights of issue number 89, right? So just pull up that email, hit the hyperlink, talks all about the annual salaries uh, information that HPN publishes. It's all right there. It's easy. Takes you directly to the article Anyway, that's the, that's the way I like to do it. It's easy for me. So, interesting article again. I'm going to read you a little bit of what the article says. So, the average annual salary of the sterile processing department's professionals is up 3% this year from 69217 compared with 67096 in 2022. What is surprising in this article is a 14% drop in the survey respondents uh, reporting yearly pay increases, 56% in 2003, down from 70% in 2022. So the results from this survey put out by HPN provides insights, not only compensation, but it also Uh, talks about job security, certification, continuing education, shifting roles and responsibilities. And then there's some comments from uh, SPD individuals who commented on their experiences, offer some insights into our field and into the future. So the article goes on to talk about some different things. So what I like about this article is on the front page, it breaks down some average uh, salary information. Again, we said the average annual salary base for this year is the 69217. In 2020, 
the average salary was $67,096. And then 10 years ago, 2013, the base salary was $53,605. So continually growing, which is good. Uh, but the article also breaks down in uh, by gender. So you can see the average pay uh, for females and males and kind of compare those. It also gives you information as in the percent of increase over the last year, which was roughly 3%. Gives you information. Do you expect a bonus and give you some results and that kind of stuff? The article also goes in, and what I again, what I like about this is it tells you kind of a general idea of a few different things. One of those being salary by title, right? So you can compare your salary against the SPD manager or supervisor, lead technician, uh, just a regular uh, SPD technician or a coordinator, director, educator, liaison, you know, all different kinds of things. It kind of gives you the, the base salary or the average salary by those titles, which is good. And you compare that to what you are uh, currently at. And then it also gives you information about uh, your level of education. So it talks about, and it breaks this down into male and female, into gender groups. So high school uh, versus associate's degree versus bachelor's versus postgraduate. And it gives you a percentage and, again, the associated pay average for those for that uh, education. It also talks about um, salary by certification and what that kind of looks like. And from here, you know, the folks that are already certified, and which was 92% of the respondents, you know, there is definitely a pay increase above those who are in the process of obtaining certification and considering certification or not certified at all. So it's interesting to look at those numbers and you can kind of, again, gauge where you're at in your journey. So then another thing that I, I like is it also breaks down uh, the average pay according to regions. And those regions being the Northeast, Southeast, Central, Mountain, and Pacific regions. And again, it also does that by gender. So again, gives you a good idea of what your pay can expectations should be in those general areas. Again, just giving you more information that you can access. It also breaks down salary by time in SPD and then salary by time at facility. Again, some good information. Interesting things to look at. It also poses, again, those questions and comments from different professionals in the organization. So again, I would recommend that uh, if you are interested in seeing what the pay looks like uh, in sterile processing, this is a great article. Again, they do it every year. And I think I've mentioned it for the last two or three years. But go check it out either at the hpnonline.com or in the HSPA Insights number 89 issue. Again, it's half that hyperlink and, you know, gives you easy access to this information. So I hope that is helpful for you. I hope it educates you just a little bit more about sterile processing and how the pay works and what it kind of looks like. So use that information. And that is it for this segment.
So like I said in the intro, today we are talking to Sharon Rojo. Now Sharon has 30 years in sterile processing as a sterile processing technician, educator, instrument coordinator, and surgical technologist. He is currently a senior clinical educator specialist for Healthmark Industries and has been with the company for more than five years. Now, Sharon has a bachelor's in communications and he received the fellowship from HSPA in 2021. And he's also been involved in numerous ANSI Amy work groups, including ST79, ST91, and now co chair of PB70. Well, Sharon, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. So can you explain what insulation testing is and why it's so important in healthcare? Yes. Well, insulation testing tests for the integrity of the insulation on that instrument or device for any um, damage like gouges or scratches or even pinholes. And it's really vital um, for patient safety because there's been documented cases where patients have had you know, internal burns or surface wounds or even surgical fires in the OR. Now, is this optional? <laughs> well, there's <laughs> recommendations and standards which came out in 21, which was a 2020 amendment. And in this new section in 8.1.2 was really in more detail about testing and the frequency, which is every time it's processed, yeah. but it did give more guidance on the type of instruments that it would include because it was really, in my opinion, people were focusing more just on laparoscopic, but there were so many other devices to look at. And then it also included the different type of testers that may have specific accessories. Okay. So from your experience, what are the most common testing devices used? So the common tests that are out there, again, go back to laparoscopic. And this has been going on for many years now where the tester is limited to just laparoscopic, whether it could be three millimeter, five or even 10 millimeter. Or in some cases, you'll have more sensitive tests that will have more of an array of accessories to tend, uh, test more devices in your inventory which people forget because you have other type of items that you use all the time and they're right in front of your face, like a insulated bipolar forcep, and you don't know you need to test it. Yeah. So really they can range. I always look at insulation testers sort of like cars and there's no bashing on cars. <laughs> to me, as long as you have a car, that's good. That's number one. But you can have an insulation tester from a Toyota, a Buick to a Porsche. And obviously they're all great cars. I've had Toyotas. I actually have a Buick now. But they range in prices, mm -hmm. but they also range on what they can do. So obviously when you go up to a Porsche or even a Tesla, it could be more features to it. In this case, it tends to be more sensitive or more accessories to test an array of instruments. So there's a lot out there. There's some that are fixed, meaning that it's a big unit, or you can get the installation tester if you get you know uh, the, their repair service. And there's also mobile ones. So different colors, different sizes, but you just have to be a smart shopper. What are some of the challenges that come with insulation testing and how can you address those? Well, from my study, <laughs> that was a lot. And I know we're going to probably dive into that. But the one of the biggest challenges I see is technique. So you can have the right tester <laughs> and the right accessories but it's the technique that lacks. So what happens is, is that you'll get an in-service, let's say from a vendor, 
but they're not going on the technique where, you know, you need to slow down, you need to go up and down, left to right, or do a certain pattern, or on something that might be unusual, like an insulated handle that people don't know they need to be testing. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to do that. So to me, that's one of the biggest ones that stands out. But there's a lot of contributing factors with testing that, of course, was um, in the study in the presentation. Can you kind of explain how insulation testing ensures patient safety or or helps patient safety, I should say? And what are some of the risks with poor insulation? So I don't think it's, you know, obviously there's this gray area, right, with insulation testing because it doesn't guarantee anything. Mm -hmm. But you do limit, you bring down that risk level to the patient being harmed in any way. I think that testing along with the correct magnification, which is what I noted in the study because they go hand in hand, Mm -hmm. they both tell you two different pieces of the story. Always two sides of the story, right, John? (laughs) And um, with this one, you know, you do the testing and then typically what happens is, let's say it's damaged, you replace it. The problem is you're just replacing it, but you're not looking at the damage specific, you know, to that specific damage to look at trends under the right magnification. Hmm. So enhanced inspection microscope is really what um, Amy calls out. And it's really enhanced where you can see the type of damage and you need to be able to identify scrapes to bigger patterns of scrapes to shorter patterns of scrapes to a pinhole because you know something that is a little wider of a scrape is going to be metal instrument scratching against the insulation which could be poor staging and decontam or the container but something that's more fine and like a almost like a crisscross pattern Mm -hmm. is going to be a bovie pad from the or being used on you know on the end of a distal tip of an l hook or a shape or a um, spatula Mm. which is not good (laughs) so again it's both things it's identifying what the damage is and then looking for or testing for it um and you could just have just horrible outcomes for the patient so i don't know if that answers it completely there's a lot of different types of damage to be honest john (laughs) yeah yeah can you discuss the importance of meeting industry standards for insulation testing and how departments can really help ensure that they're in compliance with those Yeah. So when Amy came out with the amendment, I I just felt like it was such a big step because it was a combination between 8.2.1 and a combination of 8.2, which started off with magnification and checking, which was great because it was more detail in really what you need and what you should be identifying. Like for an example, if it was in an IFU to use a certain magnification, this is what you need to have. Hmm. And obviously we know the IFU is a golden ticket, but then Amy went on to say about those steps in insulation testing, and it even supplied a table. And in the table, it had the type of instrument, the damage points, and the tools needed to meet that, you know, inspection. And it was the first time ever that this this amendment had pictures that were in color Mm. that matched the damage to the table. Then eventually ST91 actually ended up having pictures of color. So we started it first. That's what I tell people. <laughs> yeah, we were the first ones that came out with the pictures of color. But so I think that answers your question that, yeah. you know, it really is a guide, you know, those standards and recommendations. So how do you ensure consistent and accurate insulation results? And what steps can you take to manage quality control? Both things are education, not just any education. I'll break that down and auditing. which was part of the study and the presentation that I did. So education, Mm -hmm. you should always have initial education or what we call in-servicing when you 
buy or purchase a new insulation tester and accessories or magnification. Now, what lacks is that you got that two years ago and then maybe they upgraded the magnification or the insulation tester. They came out with a new accessory and half the staff didn't even know it. Or someone was on maternity leave and someone forgot to train them. And then night shift, they were on vacation. So there were so many holes in that, that when I started interviewing staff in the study, it, it was literally that. Like, I would say 10%, there was something to where they didn't show up for it. Or there was cases that they don't even remember, but they were there, <laughs> you know, because in-services could be a lot of staff and they're probably towards the back and they yeah. weren't there. So in-servicing to me needs to be a combination of not just verbally telling someone or PowerPoint. It's a hands-on. You need to do the hands-on, but not just with one person. It needs to be everyone coming through. Yeah. I also believe that annual education. So I was an educator for so many years in the facility. I personally don't like annual education. I think it should be twice a year. Because by six months, you're already straying off whatever it is. And then if you every month that goes by, they start telling everybody else. And by a year, everybody's doing it wrong. So I believe that twice a year, you should be evaluating your insulation testing practices, your insulation tools, and going with the staff to see they, they understand, you know, yeah. what they're identifying. With the audit piece, that is that one you can do twice a year to even a year where you're going through and just asking, almost like a mock survey in some sense, but it's more targeted. And you're just asking, okay, so in this tray, I noticed you just finished it, um, or you're halfway through, can you tell me what you're looking for? Or I noticed right now that this has something on there. Did you, were you able to see that? And what do you think it is? And really engaging the staff to not feel like it's an audit, but it's an opportunity to just be better at what you're doing and identifying. And then the texting practices itself of how to use the accessories. A lot of times they'll lose the accessories or they're damaged and they don't know that either. And that's another part of the education that's critical is knowing when those accessories go bad. So since we last spoke, the last time you were on the show, you have added some considerably more data to your study or to your new study. Can you kind of share some of the results of that study? Yeah. So... The reason why there was a difference in this study is when I noted that in 2019, which I ended up getting my fellowship from that study, which was amazing. I didn't, I didn't plan on that, <laughs> but the study was only eight months and that's because that little pandemic we had stopped everything. Uh -huh. So I was only eight months in and I was in 2019 and then everything hit the fan what, in March. So that's why it was shorter. Gotcha. It wasn't a, a whole lot of hospitals as well. But I decided, no, I'm not going to let that beat me, that I still knew that this was going to be, it's worse than what I thought. I knew that. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing a year study. So it was May of 21 to May of 22. And in that one, it was 49 hospitals with 400 and what, 17, 19 instrumentation that were insulated. Wow. And it fluctuated depending on the type of device or what they could release for me to actually, you know, assess. Sure. So that was really why this one was bigger. The data was pretty scary. I got to say it was a lot higher, but I do question, well, yeah, well, it makes sense because you did it for a longer time and you did more hospitals, mm -hmm. but I was doing the same trays, the same type of instruments, the same size facilities. So to me, I just think it was a true capture of what I was just on the right track. I just had to stop. Gotcha. So, so kind of follow up to that. Was there, were there anything that in that study or in your research that you know, you were surprised by. Yes, there there were two. 
there were two that surprised me. So the first one was the insulated bipolar forceps. And I'm talking about either an Atzen or a seven and three fourths. It didn't matter the size. So when I was going and asking for, you know, it didn't even matter if it was a sterile one or a backup um, or when they were going to actually peel pouch. It was really high. I mean, it was like 50% fail rate or higher. It was like crazy. And it made sense after, I would think I must have been more than halfway through. It made sense because when I started looking of where they were stored and then started remembering my own career of how I would stage them in Deacon Tam, I know why. Hmm. Because they're being thrown with other instruments. And so even though they're peel pouch separately and they have tip protectors and they look beautiful, by the time they reach down to SPD, and, it, and I'm not blaming just SPD because I've been there, done that, but I've also been a scrub. Yeah. I know how I was with my instruments, but it's not just the OR. It's a collaboration of both damaging mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way Absolutely. the OR treats it after, like tossing it into things with instruments, Deacon Tam was staging it with other metal instruments. because you can, And I get why, because you can't take one insulated forcep and adds in and run it in a whole washer by itself. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But I believe you should up that inventory so where you can collect them and not be, you know, in trouble to where you can probably run 10 in a pan by itself or whatever. So to me, it's up in the inventory. The other one was the bipolar or the monopolar uh, reusable cords. Okay. So what surprised me is the opposite. It wasn't as high. And I thought it was. And there were two tests that had to be done. So one was integrity, which was the outside of the cord. Okay. And the other one was continuity, which was the inside. So going in, I just thought to myself, I think the integrity outside, because I've been obviously in the OR, we would run them over, we would rip them out of the <laughs> instrument because I'd go to the bathroom real quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, our circular was ripping it out of the generator. And so it, was, it wasn't true. Hmm. So what was happening in this specific, uh, specific study, they were passing the in, um, integrity uh, the majority of the time, but the continuity, it was like 2%. Oh, wow. Now, even though it was that low, it just takes 1% for a fire. <laughs> so this was yeah. 2%, so which really came out to two different cords in two different facilities. But they were so bad that when I did the continuity and I just moved it, it would go on. And then I would move it another way, it went off. And that would have easily caused an OR fire. So to me now, looking back, the percentage didn't mean anything to me. It All it took was one, just like mm -hmm. one insulation in, of any kind can do harm. Hey, let's pause the show for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you are in the right place, my friends. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure you use the code INSIGHTS. Again, the code for this specific episode is INSIGHTS. Now, let's get back to our conversation. So were there any particular types of medical instrumentation that required specialized testing methods or devices or unique considerations when you started testing them? Yes. So if you look at insulation, insulation testers as a whole, I think the common denominator that they have accessory-wise is usually a wire brush. Hmm. The difference in the wire brushes is some are really short, some are really too big. It's almost like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> you got to get it just right. So the reason I'm bringing up this wire brush is because even though you have them, you can do a lot of stuff with a lot of different types of instrumentation. Like you can even do a laparoscopic shaft if you want. It's just you're going to be there a long time. Uh. Okay. So having <laughs> the right accessory that is less cumbersome and it, you're able to speed up that process a little bit. 
So there are specific special accessories that can test insulated bipolar forceps that use the brush, but it grounds it with a special accessory. So it holds it for you. So you're basically using okay. one hand and you're painting it. Gotcha. Versus trying to hold the forcep with one hand and the brush in the other, possibly missing areas of the insulation because you're trying to like maneuver it. Another accessory is one that's used for the monopolar and bipolar reusable cords. Before, you had this brush I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you were to sit there with a brush with a four foot or six foot cord, <laughs> it might take you about 15 minutes to cover the cord efficiently. I mean, you have to cover every side of that cord. Yeah. So was it already there? Yes, you could have done it. The problem is it wasn't being done. Even I didn't do it as a tech. It was time consuming. Yeah. So now there's a, an accessory that you just simply put it into this little, this little piece depending on the diameter of the cable, and you just pull it through. Oh, nice. Like, it's so easy. And so when you have something that's less cumbersome, then you're going to typically have more compliance from yeah. your frontline teams. Absolutely. Those are the two that stand out for me. But Nice. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners when it comes to installation testing? Yeah, I have a handful. <laughs> I have a handful, John. I think the, the one of the biggest ones is remember do not focus just on laparoscopic you know there are other ones out there i think another one that people forget is the insulated scissor that they can use in uh, neuro or ortho and that one's insulated yeah. and no one's testing it and it's insulated a lot i mean this instrument must be about nine inches tall and most of it's insulated <laughs> so just understand it also has a cable that's reusable. Yep. So just understand that you need to go back to look at your inventory and just do a little scavenger hunt and go, oh my gosh, I never thought about this. This thing's insulated, you know, and go back to see if, if you have the right accessories. The other thing I got to say is I know from the last time we talked about my daughter. So mm -hmm. my daughter in 2020, she was eight at the time. She ended up having a lab appy. And that really was a wake up call for me because she, she went into this facility, had never been in before. And you know, they didn't have insulation testers. They didn't even test. And even though she had complications after, about six days after, it had nothing to do with that. It didn't have to do with arcing in the sterile cavity or anything. It's just the infection had been not all taken out. So mm -hmm. being in critical care and almost losing my daughter for that, to me, it was a near miss. And really what I want to tell people is that we always say, what if it was your loved ones? What if it was your family? What if it was you? But when it really does happen... It drives a passion like crazy. So I just yeah. want people to step back. And when you're doing a tray and you're looking at testing and magnification, you need to remember that this definitely could be a loved one. Definitely yeah. could be a loved one. And you need to remember that because we forget. I used to forget because you're not there with the patients. You're, you're touching them indirectly, mm -hmm. you know? So I just want to share that with everyone. Well, Sharon, thank you for the study, first of all. And the work thank you've you. put into that. And thank you for taking time on the podcast with us. Thank you, John, so much. Well, that music means only one thing. I'm sorry, friends, but we are out of time for today. Again, thank you, Sharon, for sharing with us today. Thank you guys out there for listening to the podcast. HSPA, that means that episode 87 is in the books. Now, each episode that we do is on demand. So when you're ready for us, when you have time, when you have a break in your schedule, 
Tune in, listen to this episode, listen to past episodes. Again, when you're ready for us, we're going to be there for you. And as always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.